Hey, Drunk Mythology friends. I'm Kate. And I'm Other Jen. And I'm Kim. And we're the... Drunk... Dickens Gals! Dickens Gals! Dickens Gals. (laughs) Wow, we are so rusty. Yeah. That was awkward, awkward, awkward. (laughs) It it feels good, though. It feels good. Yeah, Yeah. it's kind of like exercising... I just came back from PT, so I'm like, it feels like a really good, painful stretch. (laughs) But yeah, we're back. I mean, we're sort of back. I mean, we're back with another literary classic that we're going to butcher for you. I mean, read out loud. Look, we said it before and we'll say it again. This ain't no audible. Nope, 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 nope. (laughs) It's the annotated version of literature. You may not need, but you deserve. <laughs> right. You're getting it. Congratulations. No Yay! returns. No <laughs> refunds, no exchanges. There you That's go. That's right. And tis the season, bitches. That's right. The Drunk Gals Players present <laughs> A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Yeah. And today's I... episode is a bit of a prologue or maybe a foreword, but yeah. So is the, are you going to even talk about what the difference is between a prologue or a foreword or do we even care today? We don't care today. Okay. I don't care any day. There you go. <laughs> See? See? <laughs> I have no room left in my brain for things like that to care about. It's full. There we go. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, <clears throat> I think this w- this was other Jen's idea and I think it was brilliant and yeah. only on brand because she is our Christmas gal. I am. <laughs> It was in the the way this came up was we were watching a movie on TV and the youngest Violet we could not get her to sit and watch with us because we're like explaining it's a take on the Christmas Carol and mm-hmm. she's like what and it's like wait 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 what wait what do you mean how can you not know that. How, do, how does any child of mine not <laughs> know a Christmas carol? I have failed. That's it. Shame. 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 <laughs> and I'm like immediately messaging you guys. I'm like, the world is coming to an end. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's still coming to an end, but yeah. yeah but right. <laughs> for lots of reasons. Yes. So. Yeah. This is where we are. (laughs) This is how we ended up here. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, so before we dig into chapter one, I thought I would, you know, give us our usual little background on it and uh, buckle up because I'm about to haunt you with a tale of publishing past, pop culture present, and fucked up future. So so in uh, the tradition of our our group, uh, who's made offerings to Odin this week? Oh, I am suffering so bad at work. There's so much chaos and mayhem that's coming. Has it happened all year long or is it particularly this time of year? Um, December and January are typically the worst. Mm -hmm. It does happen throughout the year, but December and January are typically the peak of suffering. So you're offering up like paper cuts and... Yeah. crossed eyes yeah and and yeah yeah <laughs> and software upgrades wow. oh, it's her yeah. un- unending software upgrades yeah i'm offering up my uh achilles tendon oh really <laughs> oh yeah well i've been in pt uh for the past couple of weeks uh 
dealing with my Achilles tendinosis, which is not tendinitis. It's oh, like the okay. step worse when the tendon actually starts to scar up and thicken. So oh. part of PT has been not just like building up calf strength and, um, you know, like fixing my running biomechanics so I don't injure it again. It has been working to actively stretch oh, and break yikes. down the tendon. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I just got back from that. So I'm ready to go. I'm ready for pain. I've like got a- beads of sweat on my forehead just thinking about that. <laughs> right? <laughs> Oh my God. I yeah. had Achilles tendonitis, the lesser. Yeah. And that was enough of a challenge for me. Yeah. But- I had a really bad hangnail once, so I know just what you oh, mean. Right? Right? Kim, what's, so, on, what's on your rye cracker today? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yesterday, uh, I I assembled the new cat tree, the new giant Wuthering Heights of cat trees. <laughs> right. Because Frida Destroyer already destroyed the one that is only two years old. So we had to get her a new one. And I also had to clean the fish tank um, because uh, Crawdaddy was, was looking a little pale. I have a beta fish. His name is Crawdaddy. And uh, he was not looking too good. We were, in fact, he was literally circling the train. Damn. <laughs> I thought, well, I'll clean the tank, and believe me, that it was the algae in the inside of that tank was rank. It was, it's only about seven gallons, but it's glass. So it was really heavy. Oh yeah, and they're they're gross, and it smells really bad. But I'm proud to announce that I cleaned the tank and got him back in there, and he was looking much better this morning. Yeah, so it's like Crawdaddy's going to make it through the holiday season. <laughs> And next up, you can clean the inside of your washer liner. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Yes. It's I remember so when disgusting. You, I remember when you texted us and <laughs> you were doing that. You're like, he's now taken me to be its bride. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a different place as the rest of you now. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, so with all of these stresses and such, what are you guys drinking? Look, all I'm going to say is this water glass here is definitely not full of vodka. Okay. I have a... And I resent the implication. I resemble the implication because (laughs) I have a Coke Zero that may or may not have Jack in it. Yay. Uh I'm pulling an OG in honor of original Jen. I am sitting here with a glass of tepid water. That's oh, so we'll hot. That. that is so sexy. We'll yeah. fix that tomorrow. Is <laughs> <laughs> because I have another final exam that I have to do. I nah. yeah. I, yeah. Speaking of uh, OG, what do we yeah. know? I, uh, so she is back from Bistritz, <laughs> and she was last seen on the banks of the Thames mm-hmm. near a warehouse, and you'll Ooh. get why in oh, very shortly. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. And so this is where I was supposed is she to... writing in shorthand. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. Um, okay, so we'll go ahead with the disclaimer for which I did not take any notes to make it witty. Let's see what I can pull out of my memory here. <laughs> Do not drink and drive cars, chariots, eight-legged horses, cat trees, Achilles whatever (laughs) i don't know just don't do any of it don't do it just Um, don't do it right all right so let's get started a long time ago when the world was young and surprise writers were still paid shit so most people 
who uh, have some degree of exposure to modern Western culture. Violet. <laughs> Look, I'm trying to be inclusive and expansive of world culture here, right? So they're at least in December, they are, they have some familiarity with the name Charles Dickens and the theme of a Christmas Carol, Scrooge and the ghosts of Christmas past, present and future. Right. Sure. But if you dig just a little deeper, there's so much more. And so, like I said, this is going to be uh, the start of an enlightening context for understanding a Christmas Carol. Or just another episode of Kate Ruins Everything. <laughs> Whatever. I do what I want. That's a true fact. <laughs> yep. She does. Yes. <laughs> anyway, let's start with the basics. Charles John Huffam Dickens. Oh, that's... Wow. Okay. Yeah. His parents have some explaining to do. That's a big name. <laughs> was born in Portsmouth, England in 1812 and basically went on to become one of the very first viral social media influencers ever. Oh. I got the receipts for it. Okay. And Dickens is also a prime example of why you should never piss off a writer and conversely why you should totally do them favors. Oh. Because, and this is going to be a theme for Let's the Let's see the theme. What's the theme? Nothing is fucking new. Thank of you. Of course. <laughs> So for a writer whose name often conjures up stuffy prose and boring literature lectures, Dickens was actually very far from uh, the type of person who you would think would inspire that sort of thing, especially in 19th century England, which had, and some might argue still has, one of the <clears throat> Megan. stratified and rigid social caste systems around. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, so I'm very curious to hear this because really all I knew about Dickens going into this was that he got paid by the word, which I know you're probably going to want to get back to. Yeah. He cheated on his wife and he gave the world Fagin. And uh, as a member of the Jewish people, I would just like to say thanks for nothing, dickbag. <laughs> you know what? You're going to be saying thanks for nothing, dickbag a lot. Okay, oh. go on. So Dickens was born into a family that was actually on the poor end of the working class scale. Um, even though his like father was, uh, you know, uh, in the Navy, he was like a clerk in the Navy or something like that. I honestly didn't pay all that much attention to the details of like his parents' jobs and shit because whatever. Um, but what's interesting is when he was 12, Dickens actually had to leave school to go work in order to support his family because his father had been thrown into debtor's prison. Oh, damn. Yeah. And debtor's prison really was a kind of prison where people unable to repay debt were incarcerated, sent there by a court judgment even, and they had to stay there until they could either secure outside funding to pay off their debt or performed enough labor inside the prison to pay off the balance as well as the cost of their incarceration. Wow, I'm watching Andor right now and it's like the same thing. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. Like you literally could not get out of debtor's prison until you paid off your debt, which meant uh, some people served a life sentence. Wow. And in the 18th and 19th centuries in England, 10,000 people a year went to debtor's prison. Hmm. So, wow. That, to me, that sounds like a lot. 
it kind it of is a lot. It is a lot. I mean, you know, it, it statistically is a portion of the population. Yeah. Not, but, you know, that's a lot of people. Everybody struggled with debt at some point, <laughs> you know, in the 19th right. century. But like, these were the people who were at not just unable to pay it off, but so badly in arrears that they got taken to court and sent to prison. Right. So like, yeah. you know, if you would kind of extrapolate up and out from those 10,000, like then there's the layer of people who are still struggling to pay and, and right. Blah, blah, blah. So this fucked young Dickens up and he obviously heard stories about prison life from his dad once he was out. And I wonder um, if his dad had prison tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to guess probably not, but go on. Probably not, but, you know, I, I may, what, what would they be of, like, you know, pound signs? Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, he's part of the shilling gang. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Wiccan included a lot of this shit in his books. Like, Little Dorrit was almost entirely about debtor's prison. And, uh, you know he became a big time prison reform advocate. So oh, I guess snap right. Dickens on that sure. point. Okay. Anywho, uh, in 1824, when his dad went to prison and incidentally, that meant that his mother and youngest siblings ended up joining the elder Dickens in prison because that was what happened. What? Yeah. Yeah. They, they kept families together. Oh my God. So Wait. now I'm thinking about following the money and thinking about the industry of clothing and feeding and housing and cleaning. Somebody must have been making a lot of money from this amount of people being incarcerated. Oh, uh, just like uh, now. Uh, because uh, nothing uh, is fucking new. Didn't we mention that earlier? Right. Is that a theme? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, also remember the prisoners are paying for their own, like, you know, support in prison. Yeah, they're, they're making license plates or whatever. Right. They're, they're making carriage plates. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, like, wow. so young Dickens was actually because he was too old to be, you know, put in the prison and he was of an age to go work at 12. Um, he was boarded out with a friend of the family and went to work in a boot blacking factory. Boot blacking. Black boot polish. Okay. Shoe shine. Yeah. <clears throat> so, All right. Basically, he worked for Warren's Blacking Factory in London, and it was a warehouse on the banks of the Thames River. And uh, his job was to stick labels on bottles of boot polish. Okay. Yeah. And interestingly enough, though he told close friends and he family about it, Dickens never revealed to the greater public about his time spent in the factory. Hmm. And Kim, I don't know about your old journalism instincts, yeah. but my old PR neurons are screaming, oh my God, what a goldmine of a fucking backstory. Right. But I mean, Dickens, he was pretty open about the prison and all that other stuff. I wonder what happened there. Yeah. yeah. Dickens never capitalized on that. However, he did write about it in his letters. In fact, I've got an excerpt here. It's a reading. Yay. Oh. Or Jen, if you will. Okay. So this, this is, is a letter that he wrote to someone? His friend, John Forster. Okay. Do we care who John is? No. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The Blacking Warehouse was the last house on the left-hand side of the way at Old Hungerford Stairs. 
okay, I'm I'm liking this so far. He's giving you all the relevant details. He's like stroker, like down and to the left. Yeah, <laughs> down and to the left. Yeah. It was a crazy tumble-down old house abutting, of course, on the river and literally overrun with rats. Its wainscoted rooms and its rotten floors and staircase and the old gray rats swarming down in the cellars and their sound and the sound of their squeaking and scuffling coming up the stairs at all times and the dirt and decay and oh my god how long is this fucking sentence Take a breath and keep going place <laughs> rise up visibly before me as if i were there again <gasps> okay <laughs> the counting house was on the first floor looking over the coal barges and the river there was a recess in it in which i was to sit and work my work was to cover the pots of paste blacking, first with a piece of oil paper and then with a piece of blue paper to tie them round with a string and then to clip the paper close and neat all round until it looked as smart as a pot of ointment from an apothecary's shop. When a certain number of grosses of pots had attained this pitch of perfection, I was to paste on each a printed label and then go on again with more pots. Oh, wash, come on, he's, it's not like he's making matches. Yeah, wash, <laughs> rinse, repeat. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't I, sound great, but he's not making matches and getting fossy jaw. No, right. no. But I mean, he, you know, this is this is enough for a 12-year-old. Like that that's that's a good point. Yeah. That's right. You know, and the sanitation. You know, I, I read other things like the sanitation wasn't great, the food was like what food? Um, the hours, like it it's a lot for a kid who was just kind of happy go lucky at school and then suddenly he's stuck in this warehouse and like and then actually the warehouse where he was sitting or the warehouse moved or something and he and like three, the two other boys who were doing this with him were actually in front of a window on the street and people would come and stare at them and laugh at them as Aww. they like did that, like, you know, 12 hours a day, they were on display. Wow. So, yeah. A lot of, Dickens only worked in that factory for one year. And um, again, the sources say only, but that is plenty for a kid. Oh, yeah. And this scarred him so deeply that it didn't just make its way into his literary work, but kind of gave him what sounds like, and again, I'm only the daughter of a psychologist and social worker, to, but I play an expert on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like he kind of had PTSD-induced OCD. And oh, interesting. some of the details I found to support this, and this quote is from um, a review in the London Telegraph of a biography of Dickens by Michael Slater, and I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, he would whip out a comb whenever a hair was out of place. He conducted regular inspections of his children's bedrooms and rearranged the furniture when he stayed in hotels so that everything was always in its proper place. Okay, that does sound a little nuts. Wow. And he was like always from that point forward, like very sort of wiggy about making sure he had enough money and, you know, worrying about his financial stability and his future and having enough to eat. Like, and so he became eat. a writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, um, I actually just, uh, threw in the picture here randomly, uh, of young Dickens. I think he's probably in his late 
20s, early 30s at this point, but he's not a bad looking dude. No, he's kind of cute. Yeah. I mean, if it was the end of the night, sure, I would. (laughs) End of the night, I'd had one too many. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Um, But also, I think that as we read A Christmas Carol, and if you've read his other stuff, you, you probably see this in a way in his characterizations. Like, obviously, they're satirical and distorted to start with. But they almost have a shading to them that I'm kind of struggling to describe. It's like, yeah, it's satire, but there's almost a sense that he kind of actually saw people in a slightly warped way in real life. Oh, wow. Kind of like if you've ever seen The Art of Toulouse-Lautrec, which obviously is um, disturbing and heartbreaking, and especially so when you see his non-satirical portraits and drawings where he's just supposed to be portraying normal people, like when he's learning how to draw. They want to walk in front of a bus, all of his people, even the happy ones. Exactly. And even the figures, even though he's, you know, practicing drawing and learning how to draw a correct human body, ostensibly, like there's just a weird little distortion. And I kind of get that same just like nails on chalkboard just a little bit with the way he portrays people in his novels. Wow. Hmm. Anyway. Interesting. Elder Dickens, the one in jail, caught a fucking lucky break because his mother died. That's lucky? I mean, in Dickens's world, you kind of come to see it for what it is. is. Uh, Charles's grandmother you're referring to. Charles's grandmother died and left old Mr. Dickens, 450 pounds. Oh. And so on the promise of this inheritance of 450 pounds, Mr. Dickens was finally allowed to leave prison along with his wife and younger children. Okay. But this didn't automatically mean that Charlie Boy was in the clear to go back to school. Hmm. In fact, his mom, in a move reminiscent of every mother who hears their child wants to major in anything from French <coughs> to theater, was a French major, was like, are you sure? Can I, can I quote my grandmother right now? Yes. Please. From this, you can make a living? <laughs> my mom said, you know, French people do things other than speak French, too. Like they can <laughs> and do shit. I'm like, <laughs> way to bring down the room, mom. <laughs> but so Mrs. Dickens was actually on the side of Charles staying at the boot blacking factory and continuing to support the family. Oh, and not cool. Naturally pissed Charles off, especially since his older sister, even while his family was in debtor's prison, had been sent to and supported at the prestigious Royal Academy of Music. Whoa, whoa, what? Really? Yeah. How was she supported? Who supported her? Who supported her? They must have paid like the year's tuition in advance. But she didn't have to Maybe that's how they went into debt. I know it was something else. I know it was something else that drove them into debt. But like, she didn't have to leave the Royal Academy of Music to go work as a nanny or a maid or something like that. Like she was allowed to stay at the academy. And yeah, and I can just hear Dickens in my head. Nobody ever heard of the famous musician Francis Dickens, huh? Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I there's kind of proof of this because Kim, I have a short reading for you. When I read this over, uh, I got the very clear image of Lydia from Beetlejuice writing in her diary. Oh, my God. (laughs) All right. This is his letter. 
It is wonderful to me how I could have been so easily cast away at such an age. It is wonderful to me that even after my descent into the poor little drudge I had been since we came to London, no one had compassion enough on me, a child of singular abilities, quick, eager, delicate, and soon hurt bodily or mentally, to suggest (laughs) that something might have been spared, as certainly it might have been to place me at any common school. Our friends, I take it, were tired out. No one made any sign. My father, quote-unquote, and my mother, quote-unquote, were quite satisfied. They could have hardly been more so if I had been 20 years of age, distinguished at a grammar school, and going to Cambridge. Damn, bitter much? Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) And this is like, this is middle-aged Charles writing this letter. Wow. Let it go, dude. (laughs) The wounds go deep. Yeah, they do. This is one of the things at the heart of Dickens's kind of patriarchal asshole views about women and how the father should be the head of the family that kind of often seem at odds with a lot of his social reform ideas. Okay, yeah. so he he had an inner struggle. Uh, big time. Okay. And by the way, the friend to whom he wrote these letters promptly turned around and revealed everything in a tell-all biography published <laughs> shortly after Dickens' death. Well, at least he waited. Say it with me. Nothing, nothing, nothing is, is new. new. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, eventually his parents did relent and sent him to a mediocre school called the Wellington Academy from about 1825 to 1827. Um, and in another instance of writing is cheaper than therapy, the school's shitty teaching and brutal headmaster and his sadistic ways ended up being showcased in David Copperfield. Yep. The oh. Not the shitty, rapey, dumbass magician whose hairstyle always gave me the creeps. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, listen to your gut when it comes to men and hairstyles and hair product. Like, this is a vital life lesson. <laughs> yeah. You can almost oh. never go wrong. Yeah. Never, like, oh, be very I don't careful. think I don't think the school headmaster being sadistic and the school experience being awful uh, was uh, just his. I think that was, like, the hallmark of going to school in England. Yeah. Uh, is that the school was going to suck. Yeah, there's very I mean, few books from that period about how to what a great time they had at boarding school. Oh yeah, and, and right. you know I think it's interesting because from you know when when I you know sort of compared it to what I've read and learned about you know French history <laughs> because yeah <laughs> I, I I speak French and I learned history. <laughs> okay, two useless things, but you know the the French educational system wasn't great. But it definitely didn't seem to have that sort of, like, suffering is fabulous edge. Right. Like, I think England kind of was, I don't know, in a league of its own there. But in a... Well, one day we can talk about Protestantism and Catholicism and... Oh, oh, well, yeah. How that influences the the culture. I I need to get a better ruler if we're going to do that. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) So anyway, in 1827, at the age of 15, Dickens left school and started working as a junior clerk in the law firm of Ellis and Blackmore. And he worked there for two years. And in his spare time, he watched YouTube, or basically the 19th century equivalent of it, which was cheap theater and music halls, where he went literally as often as he could. Oh, my God, Violet would relate to this guy. (laughs) Yeah, like when he wasn't working, he was scrounging his pennies and going 
and you would go to see the same show over and over and over again because like that was what you did like uh-huh. you either sat at home with like a single candle or in the dark or you went out and that was where you could go you know life is a cabaret old chum okay <laughs> <laughs> oh dear anyway um and you're not going to believe it but guess what Shorthand what? makes a cameo. Ooh. What? Oh my God, what happened? <laughs> Did they go to the Humpa? <laughs> Move of Amina. Sit down, Jonathan. Yep. Dickens learned Gurney's shorthand, which okay. was apparently first developed by Thomas Gurney in the 1730s and 40s, but he was actually improving on the system developed by William Mason in the 1640s and 50s. So wow. there you have it. Shorthand ruining romantic evenings since 1640. <laughs> I keep thinking about how Mina's like, and at night I'll help him with the shorthand. God, it was so romantic. (laughs) Oh, Jonathan. So learning shorthand allowed Dickens to do what most writers do. Pick up freelance work. Oh, nothing is new. Two. <laughs> Nothing is new. Nothing is new. <laughs> Though I will say at this point, he didn't really have any plans yet of becoming a writer writer. This was just like, eh, fine. You know, I know somebody and he's like, I need these articles, you know, go sit and, you know, watch what happens in court. You're in the law clerk anyway. So this was just kind of like, a eh, whatever, I'm 15 and I'll do it, you know. Um, so Dickens became a freelance court reporter. And surprise, the shit he saw go down in court about how poor people got screwed by those who could pay for the law to work for them made its Mm -hmm. way into the novels Bleak House, Nicholas Nickleby, and others. Wow, it's sure a good thing that things have changed so much that would never happen now. Yeah. Okay, is it it a quick little tangent? Yeah. Is it terrible that I've not heard of any of these other novels that you keep mentioning? No. The only one I've heard of is A Christmas Carol, obviously. You've heard of a, like, how about this one, Tale of Two Cities? Okay, I've heard the title. Don't okay. know anything about it. All right. Um, uh, Great Oliver Twist? Oliver? Oh, I've heard of Oliver Twist. Yes. Yeah, okay. that's Great him. Expectations? Heard the title. Don't know a damn thing about it. it well, there's was... lots of movie adaptations if you're interested. Yeah. <laughs> Personally, he's not my favorite writer. I but, Yeah. You know. Yeah. But... We'll, we'll uh, explore. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so in 1830, uh, Dickens was starting to, you know, think about what he was going to do. And having spent a lot of time around the theater, he decided he was going to audition. And he spent a lot of time gearing up and preparing for this major audition, which he missed due to a cold in the head. Oh, oh. but that's okay. Because two years later, at the age of 20, he published a super successful collection of his court journalism pieces under the title Sketches by Boz. Hmm. Oh. Who's Boz? So Boz, <laughs> yeah. only the, file this under only the English. Boz okay. comes from the nickname of Moses, which was oh. given to his younger brother, whose real name was Augustus. What? Why nickname Augustus as Moses? I don't don't fucking know. Okay. But apparently, if you say Moses when you have a cold, again, that head cold, it comes out Boses, which gets shortened to Bose or Boz. I don't wow. fucking know. But okay. yeah. 
sketches by Boz. And he used Boz as kind of like a nom de plume for a little while. But this was the start of all the things for Dickens. And he started writing these sketches and reports and blah, blah, blah. And in 1836, he got an offer to become an official meme maker. How so? (laughs) How is that possible? Yeah. (laughs) Well, the publisher Chapman and Hall had hired an artist to do a bunch of these engravings of cockneys in various ridiculous and humorous situations. Um, And they hired Dickens to caption them. Oh my God, it really is a meme maker. (laughs) And it was more than just captions. Speaking of software updates, did you hear that? (laughs) (laughs) And it was more than just like captioning. They wanted him to write like a little short humorous story to explain the image. Oh, funny. And as with most viral media, the first couple of episodes were pleasantly popular, but nothing remarkable. However... After about four of these, with the introduction of the character of Sam Weller, shit took off. And like any good social media prima donna, Dickens starts insisting that he write the story first and the publishers do the engraving to match Mm -hmm. instead of the other way around. Uh, Yep. And this uh, became a series. It came out in uh, 19 episodes over 20 months, and it became a sensation with the final issue selling 40,000 copies. Wow. <clears throat> huh. How many authors today are quietly weeping into their shitty Kindle Unlimited paychecks? Shut up. I'm not crying. You're crying. <laughs> We're all crying. <laughs> it trended. It was copycatted. It produced spinoffs. And most importantly, it generated merch. What? There were Pickwick so these became the Pickwick Papers. Ah, okay. Biggest, that all makes sense. Yeah. So it became his like biggest, like his foundational hit. And so the Pickwick uh-huh. Papers spun off Pickwick Cigars, Playing Guards, China Figurines, Sam Weller Puzzles, Weller Boot Polish. Wow. Oh. Bring it home. <laughs> and joke books. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. However, Dickens still felt he needed a steady job, and he went on to work as an editor. (laughs) Nothing is new. Nothing is new. He would also write plays, continue to publish his novels in serialized form. Oh, and he got married and had kids and all that. He also managed to wrangle some celebrity endorsements. Oh. As Queen Victoria herself gave, gave herself a literal book hangover, staying up late to finish the Pickwick Papers in book form and Oliver Twist. Wow. Yeah. Dickens also traveled uh, a lot. He went to America, specifically landing in Boston. What, what, my people? Um, <laughs> where he, went, he met Washington Irving. Um, he went to Switzerland. Oh, gee. Oh, gee. Yay. And Italy. And he was doing literary shit and also engaging in a little bit of rabble rousing because with his growing fame, he used it to speak out about a lot of social issues. And okay, good for him on that. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe, he, <laughs> maybe, I mean, to be fair, he was, he was really outspoken about child labor. Okay. And uh, factory conditions and like sort of the economic trap that being poor put you in. And I also feel he would have done really, really well on Twitter, provided it was in the 240 character Twitter era with threading aloud, because he was into majorly into political commentary and satire. 
In fact, he wrote this gem of a poem called The Fine Old English Gentleman to criticize the Tories, aka conservatives, who had come back into power and were uh, set to ignore and roll back a lot of initiatives about social welfare. So oh, it's a group reading time. Cool. <gasps> Fine. Uh, I'll take the first verse and then we can just keep trading off. Okay. I'll go second. Okay. I'll go third. <clears throat> I'll sing you a new ballad and I'll warrant it first rate. Of the days that old gentlemen who had that old estate, when they spent the public money at a bountiful old rate, on every mistress, pimp, and scamp at every noble gate, in the fine old English Tory times, soon may they come again. The good old laws were garnished well with gibbets, whips, and chains, while with fine old English penalties and fine old English pains. With rebel heads and seas of blood once hot in rebel veins, for all these things were requisite to guard the rich old gains of the fine old English Tory times. Soon may they come again. This brave old code like Argus had a hundred watchful eyes. Mythology reference? Yes. (laughs) And every English peasant had his gold, good old English spies to tempt his starving discontent with fine old English lies. Then call the good old yeomanry to stop his peevish cries. In fine old English Tory times, soon may they come again. The good old times for cutting throats that cried out in their need. The good old times for hunting men who held their father's creed. The good old times when William Pitt, as all good men agreed, came down direct from paradise at more than railroad speed. Wow. Oh, the fine old English Tory times. When will they come again? In those rare days, the press was seldom known to snarl or bark, but sweetly sang of men in power like any tuneful lark. Grave judges, too, to all their evil deeds were in the dark, and not a man in twenty score knew how to make his mark. Oh, the fine old English Tory times, soon may they come again. Those were the days for taxes and for war's infernal din, for scarcity of bread that fine old dowagers might win, for shutting men of letters up through iron bars to grin, because they didn't think the prince was altogether thin. In fine old English Tory times, soon may they come again. So he just fat shamed somebody? Albert may not have been the slender reed of a young man he once was. <laughs> okay. But tolerance, though slow in flight, is strong-winged in the main. That night must come on these fine days, in course of time was plain. The pure old spirit struggled, but its struggles were in vain. A nation's grip was on it, and it died in choking pain. Jesus. <laughs> with the fine old English Tory days, all of the olden time. The bright old day now dawns again. The cry runs through the land. In England there shall be dear bread. In Ireland, sword and brand. And poverty and ignorance shall swell the rich and grand. So rally round the rulers with the gentle iron hand of the fine old English Tory days. Hail to the coming time. Nothing wow. is fucking new. That oh. reminded me a little bit of uh, Pink Floyd, like uh, Pigs on the Wing or Dogs. Yeah. That same sort of very bitter 
sarcasm. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is, you know, it, this could have been a Twitter thread. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're going to kind of gloss over the rest of Dickens's life um, because oh, we have- he more- cheated on his wife. <laughs> <laughs> and caused a lot of strife. <laughs> Good one. Well played. So, yeah, we have more to come. And I, I have a small rant to get into. So, yeah, um, Dickens passed away in 1870, leaving a fine old syllabus that would torment generations of literature students to come. Also, this is where my rant starts. I have a myth to debunk. Dickens was not paid by the word. I knew that was going to come back and bite me. Yeah, he was paid by the installments. And all but five of his books were published as serials, generally 20 installments of 32 pages each. So an installment cost one shilling and the average weekly wage was one pound and there were 20 shillings to the pound. So... An actual book cost one pound 11 shillings on average. So it was much more than a whole week's wages. Whereas an installment was more like dinner out at Olive Garden for a family of four. With the breadsticks? With uh, (laughs) unlimited breadsticks and salad. Now, you know, so it, it was an indulgence, but it was kind of like everybody pays for cable. You know what I mean? Yeah. So... It it was the entertainment that everybody had. Now, if you couldn't afford a shilling, you could pay a half shilling or less, depending, to join a crowd that would listen to the installment be read aloud. Oh, cool. Audible, anyone? Reaction videos on YouTube, anyone? (laughs) Nothing is new. Wow. (sighs) The one thing that isn't new and isn't even a thing anymore is the fact that Dickens earned 500 pounds per year as an editor. Now, Mm. you know, compared to the average wage of 52 pounds per year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And the income from his cereals was closer to 1,600 pounds per year. Holy moly. 1,600 pounds per year uh, translated to today's dollars is $350,000 in today's money. Wow. Damn. We can all take a moment to weep silent. Tears of blood. Yeah, I'm doing that right now. Yeah, exactly. Now, yeah. So, but when when you broke down, like, what a shilling per word, you know, like the the whole trope about a penny per word because he was so verbose, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like an inside joke that got misinterpreted and established as a myth. Ah, got it. Myth busted. Myth busted, baby. So. Now, on to the main event, A Christmas Carol. Yay! Dickens wrote this in a kind of panic, a financial panic. Ah. Oh. Yeah. So early in 1843, Dickens found himself in debt due to his lavish lifestyle, which again, because he was this whole bag of walking contradictions, he, you know, was always worried about money, but he was also spending a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And boom, he got his wife pregnant. Oh. And... I yeah, wonder how that happened. Yeah, I have no idea. Because um, Lad was busy. I don't know how he had time to fuck, let alone sleep. So um, his most recent work, Martin Chuzzlewit, yeah, I'd never yeah. heard of it either, was a flop. Okay. 
And maybe you should have studied English literature instead of oh. French, Kate. <laughs> ah bien. <laughs> I've never read it. Go on. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't feeling all that bad about not having read it either. Um, And his publisher, Chapman and Hall, was threatening to reduce his salary as a result. Mm. Yeah. So like any C-list actor aged out of a popular teen drama that has graduated to Hallmark holiday movies, Dickens decided to cash in on Christmas. Ah. Ah. He counted out a Christmas carol in six weeks. No. All while yeah. doing his regular editor day job and writing his other serials. Oh. He, fa- in fact, kind of got obsessed with the story as he was writing it. He later wrote that the tale unfolded, as the tale unfolded, he wept and laughed and wept again as he walked about the black streets of London 15 or 20 miles many a wow. night when all sober folks had gone to bed. Wow. This is just, this is not the backstory I expected. I, I had no idea either. And I was like, oh my God. So um, now he still had some street cred because of the coattails of his earlier successes, despite Martin Chuzzlewit. <laughs> um, We're going to need to workshop that name, by the way. <laughs> just yes. saying. So he, he had a lot of say in how and when, uh, a Christmas Carol was published. Now it was originally published on December 17th, 1843, and it sold 6,000 copies within five days. It sold another 2000 copies uh, that were printed and was sold out by January 6th, 1844. Oh my God. It was a smash success in <sighs> the public's eyes and i actually have a picture of the first edition wow wow but guess very pretty it was a financial disaster for the publisher oh no what yep so remember how installments were priced at um a shilling each right and a book itself would be one pound 11 shillings so the uh, this was priced at five shillings to what? basically drive holiday gift sales. And that's about 26 pounds in okay. for one book. Yeah. That's very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that he sold any of them is kind of amazing. Right. And the thing is, Dickens insisted on this really elaborate production, like, um, he, there was a guy commissioned to do eight color illustration, uh, eight illustrations. Four were to be hand colored steel engravings, oh and the others as woodcuts. Word. He had expensive green end papers, and then replaced uh, with others of similar qualities, but yellow. The title page was originally printed in blue and red, and then was reprinted in green and red. All the edges were gilt. Like it, wow. it was an expensive physical book and it was unable to um earn much of a profit yeah with all of that going into it yeah and despite it being dickens's own decisions he blamed chapman and hall and broke with them (laughs) damn of course so um basically the first edition only brought him 230 pounds which was twenty four thousand pounds in 2022 um 
And he was actually expecting, based on the popularity and the amount of sales, because remember, 6,000 copies right off the bat. Right. Um, he was expecting closer to 1,000 pounds or 104,000 pounds in today's money. So okay. he basically made a quarter right. of what he thought he was going to make. Wow. Oh, it's and- like working for book trope. <laughs> that was a little inside i'm sorry about that yeah that's okay because that's how kim and i met and oh that's a mythology unto itself um and a year later the profits still only totaled 744 pounds so Dang. this was a big disappointment even though yeah. it went through like 14 editions by the end of 1844 a year later like it went through 14 editions but because the the production cost was so expensive. Like he just made shit from it. But so he, every time they redid it, he still continued to insist on all of this. I don't crazy know expensive... if he insisted every single time. Okay. But the first couple of years where he was like really trying to, you know, leverage this because it was extremely popular. Right. Um, you know, it, it really didn't do much to bolster his income. Right. And, you know, like any good author flogging their back, their back catalog. Yeah. um, Dickens took to doing live readings. Mm -hmm. Oh my word. Of it and live performances of it. And he did 127 of these until his death from the publication until its death to keep, you know, flogging the, uh, the Christmas Carol horse. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, there was a lot more I could, I I just didn't have the time or energy to go into about like how it reflects uh, a conflict about changing Christmas culture and, you know, uh, Christmas traditions and, you know, how urbanization impacted a lot of the stuff that was, you know, going on, blah, blah, blah. We can do that eventually at some point if we feel. I wonder how many copies of the original press run are still out there and what they're worth. Oh, oh, God. I, you know, I probably could find out because mm-hmm. I got a lot of this from this really cool um, uh, website, Fine Books Magazine. It's all oh, about, cool. like rare books and shit. And oh. yeah, this they had this whole article about uh, rare book Mythbusters number one. The reason Charles Dickens's books are so long is because he was paid by the word. Haha. No, he wasn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, they they even have like um how many lines per page it like it uh, an installment generally had okay Um, so each installment was approximately like eighteen thousand words wow so you know um yeah for Uh, a frame of reference kim how many words was the last was your book that just the one that's coming out next next week. <laughs> yes, the, I read. I I've read so many edits of it. Yeah. I'm like, uh, when is this publishing? When does right. this go live? <laughs> uh, that had uh, by the time we were done with it, um, somewhere between seventy and eighty thousand words, which is, I think, a pretty typical okay. length for a fantasy novel these days. It's not like okay. epic fantasy, like my last books, which yeah, were right. closer to a hundred thousand words. This is this is like seventy. Yeah, okay. Let's call it seventy. Okay, so that gives me a frame of reference with 18,000. Yeah. Now, remember, he had 20 installments. 
So 18,000. Oh, a long ass book. <laughs> right. Yeah. So 18,800 words on average times 20 installments. And I'm quoting from the article. This is not my own math, but basically right. 376,320 words per book. And, and how that, many friends, words? is too many. <laughs> how many words is a Christmas carol? Because uh, I feel like that one was shorter. Yeah. It is shorter. Um, honestly, we have the file. I, yeah, we have the file. Pulling it up. Okay. But um, basically where they got the whole thing about a penny per word was um, it if you break down what it, you know, the amount of words per installment by a shilling, like it basically was a farthing, which is a, a fraction of a penny. And okay. so basically he was making Kindle Unlimited. I was just thinking that. Fraction of a penny <laughs> per word <Yeah>. money. <laughs> but yeah. Okay, so I think we can say the, a Christmas Carol, let's call it 31,000 words. The file I have has some extra stuff in it, but yeah. ballpark 31,000 words for a Christmas Carol. Okay. Yeah. As, and, you know, I think, again, he wrote it in six weeks. Yeah. Which, you know, as opposed to like a 300,000 word, blah, you know, right. 30,000 words in six weeks. And again, remember, he That's was pretty writing, quick. He was writing by hand. Oh, right. no typewriters back then. He oh. had to write everything by hand. And, and he had a day and, job. And he had a day job. And, and a bunch of kids. Oh, who cares about them? Now, he wasn't uh, taking care of them, but he did have them. Right. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, so it was... Um, you know, and to rush this into publication, like you had to set up all the type, you had to proof the galleys, like it, it, it was, you know, a lot of twitch, just thinking about it, a lot more labor intensive, like same process, but just a lot more labor intensive. On the other hand, they didn't have the internet. So what else did they have to do? Good point. <laughs> <laughs> so, Watch the candle. <laughs> Watch the wax drip. Right. <laughs> I think it's starting to drip down the right side. <laughs> so, down into the left. There you go. It's dripping down to the left. So there you go. I've set the stage for the drunk Dickens gals. Oh dear. Fucking end. Yay. That was is, yeah. The, okay. This is gonna be interesting. Yes, definitely. Um, we don't know when we're going to actually start. Soon. Um, very, yes. very, soon. very soon. Yeah. yeah. I'm, soon assuming, I'm assuming sometime before actually Christmas itself. <laughs> well, well, not, hey, you know, whatever. That's a nice goal. Yeah. <laughs> we can figure something out. <laughs> but yeah, no, we're, we're going to get this done. Like, yes. like Jen said, it's, it's not, um, it's not a vast undertaking. It's certainly shorter than Dracula. Way shorter than Dracula. So yeah, we might actually be able to get it done. Like if you took all of Van Helsing out of Dracula, it's about that long. <laughs> I wasn't that comment. Oh, I've missed him. <laughs> I have to say, my dear Madamina, I do not think you should be part of this discussion. <laughs> uh, fine. I'll go in my room and shut the door. <laughs> go try to channel some Dracula or something. You know, see if your mind meld will work, huh? <laughs> well, this is what my French major was good for. I have a <laughs> French accent. 
Well, we will be bringing you the Drunk Dickens gals coming up very soon. Oh, my God. Wow. I seriously, Southern Baptist Mean Girl, Lucy Westenrott is forever one of the one of the more inadvertently horrifying things that like literally sends chills down my spine. I will figure out where to work her into this. I'll find a place for her. That's okay, because I already got my I got my plan for Scrooge. I got my plan. I'm good. Uh, I'm ready for this shit, man. I better read it, huh? Uh, yeah, I guess we probably should do some prep on it. <laughs> oh, yeah, then there's that. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yes, we're back sort of in the saddle. We're sort of like clinging to the side of the saddle for dear life. Mm-hmm. But we're that's, back. And yeah, that's we're here to the help, uh, help you through the holidays. I mean, we don't have any sponsorships from BetterHelp. But you know what? Listening to trash liter- trash talk about literature can be therapeutic. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I hope. <gasps> That's right. And we're going to uh, be doing this while we support Kim and the release oh, of the yeah. new book. Oh, That's thanks. Right. Yeah. Tell us about it. Um, it is the fourth book in New World Magic. It's about a bartender named Ruby in DC who saves the life of a unicorn shifter. His name is March, and they have adventures. The first book is called Pure. That's been out for a while. Book four is called A Poisoned Garden, and it comes out December 13th. And I don't know when we'll be listening to this on the uh, on the airwaves, uh, but uh, go to my website, KimAlexanderOnline.com, and uh, it's available just about everywhere you can buy a book. There you go. Awesome. I've Thank you. A couple of drafts. And Thank you so, so good. Yep. We, we get the inside skinny on everybody's books here. So yeah, That's true. We, we love it. We love yeah. it. I highly recommend it. So, Thank yep. you so much. Yep. 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 All right. Well, let's close this out. So don't forget to add yourself to our social media scrolls. We're on Instagram at Drunk Mythology Gals. Uh, oh, we remain on Twitter. We haven't pulled the plug oh, on that. We haven't pulled the plug ship. Yet, whatever. Yeah, I, I finally just unplugged and I feel a lot better for it. Anyway, if you're still on Twitter, we're Drunk Myth Gals. Kate puts some interesting videos on TikTok at Drunk <laughs> Mythology Gals. Uh, all of them pretty much trying to poke my buttons. <laughs> uh, you know, I love putting up cooking videos. Uh, I'm also, oh, how's this, uh, before we let, let you go away, how's the sourdough? Oh, uh, we're we're about two days away from um, baking, bitch. Oh, from unleashing the Black Death over Southern California. <laughs> you know what? Merry fucking Christmas! <laughs> I love it. And you can uh, find us on the web at drunkmythologygals.com. and on Patreon at patreon.com/slash/drunkmythologygals. Or you can send us an email, which we won't check. (laughs) (laughs) Our friend Frederick can tell you about that. He had to hit me up on Facebook Messenger this week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Gals at DrunkMythologyGals.com. That's right. Thanks again. (laughs) Thanks again for joining us. Please subscribe, leave a rating or review, and tell your friends and family about us, especially if they come home from college saying, hey, mom, I want to be a double (laughs) major in French and theater, and I think I'm going to write satire, and I'm going to make a living as a writer. (laughs) Finally, always remember, if the gods and publishers and writers can (laughs) behave badly, then so can you. (laughs) 